and welcome to Newsville with Joe and Neil. I'm Joe. And I'm Neil. And welcome to your weekly antidote to fake news. Not a lot happened this week, Joe. Not Nothing major anyway. So I figured we'd take the opportunity to discuss something. That's kind of a trend. It's been going on for a while. It's happening at a steady pace. And it's happening all over the world. Um, we know it best in the West as the election of Donald Trump in the US and in the UK, not the election of anyone yet, but the Brexit issue, the Brexit referendum, the rise of nationalism. I just clutched my pearls. <laughs> Indeed, well, the Western media does that routinely. I mean, obviously, with those two issues, we hear about it nonstop. But what's interesting is that globally, there have been a string of elections in the last few years where the same pearl clutching has gone on in the Western media reporting about those elections. Right. Um, the one that comes to mind happened this week in Pakistan. Um, the election of Imran Khan. He's basically the populist nationalist candidate. He's been trying to run in Pakistan for, for decades. He's had a, a party for decades, but he never really had any success. Until 2013, he had a good election result, and it's now in their next election where he's been elected prime minister. Um, let's have a look. Can you pull up, Scotty, the, I think it's a CNN headline announcing the election of Imran Khan. This is how it's, there we go. Um, you see the question on their mind? <laughs> Imran Khan, Pakistan's Trump. Trump. And he's not the only one. They've had headlines like that. The Economist with um, AMLO. In Mexico, his election recently. Oh, the next Trump. He's like, their, Mexico's answer to Trump. And their beef is that he's nationalist. The beef is that he's nationalist. But so what? Aren't they all essentially nationalists? No, there's more to it than that. Um, the, the story of Khan's rise to power is interesting. Um, here's, a few, here's a few details you probably don't know about Pakistan. So, well, he was elected with a near majority. He has to form a, a minor coalition government, but he pretty much won outright. He is going to be the next prime minister. Um, he's he's well known. His similarity with Trump, but this is only a superficial one. He's well known in Pakistan as a famous cricketer. So he was a sports star in eighties and nineties, and he was captain of the Pakistani World Cup team that won the cricket in sometime in the early nineties. So he's a star for different reasons, and then he's a star for being a famous um, living the high life in London, in the United Kingdom, where he marries an English aristocratic wife. Jemima Goldsmith. But then he gets into politics gradually, and he, you would think someone like that would have a kind of pro-Western bent and so on and so forth, but he's very much not. He's a conservative, or at least he's grown into the role of a conservative Pakistani leader. Um, he basically formed a new party. This is a, this is a similarity with all of the election upsets in the last few years. He formed a new party that is not part of the status quo. Um, it's Pakistan's Tehreek e Ansaf party. That's PTI, which in English translates to the Justice Movement. It basically ran on an anti-corruption uh, ticket. You know, so many parties have done that in elections for decades, but in this case, it's had real results because the 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 candidate of one of the two establishment parties that would have run was in prison, so his brother ran instead. And he was tainted by 
the corruption scandal that actually put his brother in jail. Um, ironically, it stemmed from leaks in the Panama paper scandal in 2016. So that's inadvertently brought about a result that the Western status quo would prefer not to see a populist nationalist candidate. Mm. Um, it's amazing that these elections happened. I mean, there were, there was a lot of violence. There has been in Pakistan for a long time. I mean, leaders get assassinated there. They're, in this case, just last week, four days before they went to the polls, there was a massive explosion um, at a polling station, killed 35 people in Quetta. Uh, guess who claimed responsibility? ISIS. Mm-hmm. Right there, that's dodgy. I mean, there are <clears throat> lots of groups in Pakistan with either terrorist either outright terrorist backgrounds or there may be can be considered um, uh, either nationalist, i.e. they're fighting against Indian troops in disputed Kashmir region. There's a gray area where there's some are outright terrorists and some aren't. In this case, ISIS in Pakistan is ridiculous because it's, it's, if ISIS claims responsibility, it could be anyone. Mm-hmm. It could have come from anywhere. And almost certainly, that I'll just jump straight to it, and I'll suggest that that's got to be a kind of externally influenced thing to somehow affect the polls, somehow hurt Cannes' rise. It mm-hmm. didn't anyway, because the turnout for this was astonishing for Pakistan, 55%. That's more people. You think it's hard to vote in the United States or something? Try doing that when there's a terror campaign going on. I mean, there were grenade attacks in addition to the suicide, suicide bombing. Um, 55% turnout remarkable. It, Pakistan hasn't that had that high a turnout since the 1970s mm-hmm. um, when Bhutto's father ran. Um, right. It's clear in Pakistan's case, in a way, this is like the anti-deep state candidate. But on the other hand, it's a bit different in Pakistan where it's a bit like Egypt where the militaries had a strong influence. They have a very large military and then they have to for some kind of order in a country of 200 plus million people. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's been fighting, you know, terrorism issues for for decades. Um, in this case, they, they kind of signaled that they preferred Khan because they pumped in they they had th- up to four hundred thousand troops at polling stations throughout the country for the duration of the campaign. To give you an idea of how many that is, that's like five or six times the number of troops they posted during the last campaign, which was just as violent. So. That kind of signals that they wanted this election to happen because there was already a national groundswell of support for Imran Khan. And it also, by tacit admission, suggests that Pakistan's deep state, its military um, generals, preferred Khan to win. Um, mm. Well, the, the interesting thing about Pakistan is that I think you had a, a historical um, low turnouts and polls and stuff because. Mm-hmm. Really, since its creation in the early 1950s, after it split from the British-controlled Indian, Indian Empire into yeah, India and Pakistan, and, uh, it, yeah, sorry, 46, it um, it has been Pakistan has been mostly its politics and its certainly its uh, security services and stuff have been controlled by Western interests, um, and that's been known amongst the you know a lot of the voting population in Pakistan hence a kind of a reluctance or a you know people not really seeing the point and in, in, in going out or there being a lot of um kind of division among the voting population because basically 
well, who are we going to vote for? These All of these people can be traced back to having links to uh, non-nationalist, basically non-Pakistani uh, yes. governments and, and, and agencies and stuff. So, they're uh, civilian elite, if you like. Their, right. their, their deep state, in quotes, right. is... I know I said it was the military. Just forget that for a second. It's essentially the Anglo, Anglo, Anglophile remnants of what was left behind by the British Empire. And can't explicitly address the population in those terms. Those English-speaking elites, aren't we all sick of them? <laughs> yes, we are, and they mm. voted him in. You know, But it's ironic that he himself is schooled in the... I think he went to university in England as well. Right. So he has gone through the same system. Yeah. But he, just, he is of the, the elites. Not, yeah, but, but it's not necessarily where they come from. It's, it's the extent to which they're willing to sell... Pakistan soul, let's say, and Pakistani nationalism to to foreign interests, you know, and, and most, most of the leaders since then uh, have, have done that, if you look at the history of it. Um, and, I mean, it's interesting that Benazir Bhutto um, was probably the last nationalist, uh, truly nationalist leader of, of Pakistan, and uh, she was she was murdered uh, by, effectively by Al-Qaeda. Uh, so it's, In quotes, so, yeah. so it's interesting now that you have... Uh, uh, ISIS, uh, uh, the, the the new incarnation, let's say, of Al Qaeda, um, who are carrying out bombing attacks at Imran Khan's uh, at, 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 on the election day, you know. So all of that suggests, um, yeah, that there's certain Western influences, let's say, who aren't interested in any kind of nationalism uh, rising up uh, or, or, or taking hold in Pakistan, because nationalism automatically means um, it means a reestablishment of sovereignty, and if there are foreign powers who have their foot, foothold in a, in a country, then uh, a nationalist, uh, you know, prime minister or leader or whatever who wants to reestablish some kind of sovereignty would end up coming into conflict with those people. You know, and they, I mean, it's very well. It's easy to, easy to foresee that. It's easy for Western powers to foresee uh, the the direction that a certain uh, leader is going to take. You know, um, so it wouldn't be I'm, put it this way. I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, if there's some kind of an attack on Khan himself. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the not too distant future, and that he may even be killed. So, um, right, right. Because right, right. I mean, this this speaks to the topic of the show today, which is the fact that nationalism is a dirty word, has been a dirty word mm-hmm. in in the West um, for well, seventy years since the Second World War. Really. I mean, nat- nationalism is just one step from, according to a lot of people, nationalism one step away, or that's the preceding step, let's say, to uh, Nazism. Right. Uh, and totalitarianism, dictatorship, all that kind of stuff, which is complete nonsense, really. You know, it's uh, it, it, historically that's complete nonsense. It's only in, in the last 70 years that that's, that's the truth or reality when it's not really uh, true at all. Um, but, of course, getting back to that point that I was making, um, Western powers, you know, we live under an American empire. We have lived under an American empire, a Western-dominated global uh, order, let's say. And that order has um, established itself uh, under under conditions of, of, let's say, globalization, which is the exact opposite of nationalism and populism. It's about opening the entire world up to the strongest and the most uh, the most cunning or the most uh, or the smartest uh, influences to to get access to the world. It's making the world one big. Uh, country in a certain sense it's just the planet and everywhere is open you know uh, so nationalism is a bad thing because nationalism is as we know associated with kind of like protecting your borders uh, economic isolationism uh, protectionism that kind of thing 
and it's just not the way of the world it has it's just not the way the world has been and has the modern world has established itself over the past second, 70 or 80 years since the second world war it's that's not what it's built on so there's a real pushback against that of course there's a cultural aspect to that as well which is and a positive cultural aspect to that which is that you know we're all one one uh, race there's only one race we're all one people we're all humans and the whole world is my home type of thing so that feeds into uh, globalization, you know, economic, let's say the, the, the primary aspect of globalization, which is economic, which is giving major corporations access to as much of the world as possible. But to facilitate that, you got to get the people on side. You know, you got to get people, uh, encourage people to be happy with that idea. And you do that by encouraging this idea of one world, one people, one race, uh, open all the borders, free flow of people all around the world. Everybody's my brother, everybody's my sister, that kind of thing, uh, which obviously facilitates globalization, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems that, you know, and that kind of globalization really only has only been possible in the context of the kind of world order that we've had since, since the Second World War. The post-Second World War uh, world order has been dominated by the West and primarily by the USA. So that kind of a globalized world really only works uh, when you have an empire, a major power, uh, a, a world's greatest superpower that kind of dictates, dictates terms to everybody or protects everybody. Um, kind of like a mafia boss, you know. And uh, so, so it works only in that context, and in that context, globalization is is effectively uh, the world being opened up for these, like I said, these major powers in the West, you know, particularly the USA. But then, as the world changes, as it has done quite dramatically over the past fifteen or twenty years, um, you know, it's no longer possible to to that 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 order, that global order under 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 the control of one major superpower, uh, is is no longer kind of tenable or no longer possible when you have other countries coming up to, you know, uh, parity level in terms of economic power or military power or just political, diplomatic power, whatever, other presence in the world. So you have, you know, China, Russia and other countries coming online who can compete with and even threaten the, the hegemony of the US. And that's when, you know, globalization falls apart, basically, that, that idea of globalization, because, well, you're going to have to re- redefine it, reconfigure globalization. You know, it's like, not just the world open for one country type of thing or one section of the world, or rather it's uh, these other parts of the world that were previously being uh, exploited uh, now demand a, a fair shake. Yes. You know? uh, so globalization, as it has been conceived or has, has been implemented since the last, since over the last 70 years, uh, start, is falling apart now, you know. Um, but people who are exponents of it, like basically... Uh, American exceptionalists and that kind of thing, um, they double down on 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 the need to maintain globalization, maintain the the the, the liberal world order as led by America, and they um, obviously look very uh, unfavorably on populism, nationalism, and demonize it effectively because yeah. it's well, it I don't know, it's it's a challenge to America, and that's the strange thing about most. You get this from the left, like you showed a. Well, we just showed a, a headline from CNN, mm-hmm. radical lefty, not radical lefty, but leftist news, anti-Trump, hates Trump, hates, hates nationalism and stuff. But what they're actually promoting is, they're, they're not promoting a better world, you know? They're not, I mean, they're, they're basically, the CNN and the likes of CNN on the left, effectively, are the ones who will, like we've just seen, who will, who will stand on the necks, attempt to stand, you know, figuratively, through their propaganda and through their, their media outlets will, will stamp on the necks of any country that attempts to uh, 
take a more prominent place or to to establish itself as its own country and 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 through that gain more rights and better a better share of the pie for its citizens you know that's effectively what nationalism in pakistan would do you know i mean a lot of pakistanis live in in, in poverty and are quite poor you know it's, uh, a, it's, it's like a, it's very poor and and these countries are trying to raise, raise themselves up and the best way they can raise themselves up is to because they are poorer in this globalized world as a result of this globalization of the world so the an- the antidote to that is for them to eke out a little bit of sovereignty and nationalism for themselves and to stand on their own and and demand uh to be treated with a bit more respect and not be the kind of like the uh you know not be the, the exploitable country that they yeah. that they have been you know but it's strange to see that cnn on the left supposedly you know the the bleeding heart lefties type thing are the ones who are actually trying to stop that from happening because they get to present this as well this is trumpism this is nazism this is populism this is nationalism it's all bad because what because hitler it's just the whole thing is just so ridiculous but the, i mean cnn are more far more this is a weird thing cnn are by far cnn and their and, their, and the likes of them in the us and in the west in particular are by far more uh, imperialistic authoritarian militaristic and exceptionalist in terms of america uh, than anybody on the right is yeah you know because like nationalism like by definition if you want to call trump a nationalist although he's not only a nationalist but that by definition is a pulling uh pulling the horns in type of thing pulling away pulling america away at least in theory from the world and and america hasn't you know done an awful lot of good for the rest of the world in terms of the people that have uh, have have suffered as a result of american expansionism and american uh, imperialism and stuff and so and we talked about this before you know trump talking about doing away with nato you know he's made reference to whether or not it's possible or whether or not it'll happen that's a different story but he's talked openly about whether or not nato is even useful anymore and whether america should continue to fund nato and of course of course nato would collapse or would fall apart if america pulled out of it but nato is what is nato responsible for nato has done nothing except on the only positive thing you can say about nato is that it, it has just served there as a supposed protective mechanism but when it has actually acted in recent years what has it done it has destroyed countries mm-hmm. and killed thousands of people with so, direct consequences for the, the places trying to protect europe the right, wave of immigrants right. from africa so why why would leftist organizations not why would they complain about trump talking about the taking nato apart um when it's obviously very much in line with a with the leftist anti-war uh, anti-imperialism approach you know but they can't see past trump basically so because trump wants it it's evil you know and of course nato should be disbanded because nato in case anybody has forgotten nato was created uh as a direct response to uh soviet russia and communism and the cold war that doesn't exist anymore so nato by definition is no longer it has served its purpose it it it's raison d'etre does not exist it doesn't have one anymore so it makes absolute sense for nato to go bye bye because a new world has is 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 beginning right now you know what i mean people forget that that for most people their their history and people who are still alive who grew up during the cold war and stuff Dude, that's all changed now. You need to let go, you know. Mm-hmm. And not only is is it as the Cold War finished, but also American hegemony is effectively finished. So you can, you know, and I know it might, it might be hard 
but for all the American exceptionalists, you can all stop or try begin the process of stop thinking about America as the world's only superpower and the greatest nation in the world and that and the greatest democracy on earth and the world's policeman. You can just stop doing that now because you're, if you don't, you're simply delaying the inevitable and you're just going to, you know, you're, you're, you're running against the wind as, uh, what do you call him? Bob Seger wrote, uh, it's, it's a bad idea, you know, things are changing, you know, and I know it's difficult to kind of like adjust to it, but really, first of all, recognize the fact that things have changed and are changing dramatically and you need to get, get with, the, with the new wave type thing, you know, it's a... The, I think what's, what's driving America as exceptional isn't patriotism on the part of the U.S. and so-called Western deep state. It's in, in a country like Pakistan, they benefit. Ironically, they're actually being the conservatives in this day and age because they want to maintain the status quo. They don't want these changes being brought up by those far-right conservative nationalists, in quotes. Um, the, the status quo is that hot money from Wall Street and London has to be allowed unimpeded to flow into Pakistan, profit quickly, and get the hell out of there before the fire erupts, as it naturally will, from the collapse of industry, from a war breaking out, from a string of terrorist attacks. It's a game of chicken where it's an ever-increasing race to get the profit, get the money in, invest, but only to pull it out. It's hot, and we need access. That's why the Southeast Asian, the, the wider Asian um, financial crisis happened in the late 90s mm. and why those countries responded in kind to kind of tamp down and clamp down on the ability of this hot money to flow in and out mm. that's basically American or western imperialism today and that's what they want to be able to keep unimpeded so when someone like Khan comes in and says I want to build up Pakistan's industry I'm going to strengthen our relationship with China which obviously involves the Chinese-Pakistan economic corridor that's mm -hmm. already, like you say, it's in the process mm -hmm. of happening mm -hmm. anyway. It's mm -hmm. inevitable. So he is just—he is just a political. Um, I suppose he's a political lightning rod for the process that's already under. Uh, a manifestation of something that's yes. already in process, yeah. And the same with all these other guys everywhere. They're just the political, getting in sync with the underlying economic change mm -hmm. on, on social issues. He's maybe he's going to be socially conservative. At least he's done that. You know, I'm a religious Pakistani, social values, traditional values. But on the left, on other issues, on economic issues, he's talking about a modern Islamic welfare state for all, building up Pakistan's industry with the help of China. Um, for the last ten years, he has been he has literally led. He's been at the front of. Um, anti-war protest mm -hmm. directly criticizing the United States yeah both in Pakistan with Obama's drone warfare mm -hmm. and in neighboring Afghanistan he's saying this is not working where we, we fund the Taliban or fund groups counter the Taliban it's a complete mess of groups against groups he is adamant that he is coming in now and he's going to solve the Kashmir issue Kashmir is basically like the bleeding wound of both Pakistan and India he's like he's a nationalist but He's not coming in and doing what the usual rhetoric is, which is to be anti-India in Pakistan. That used to get you elected. Right. People are electing a nationalist because they recognize a sane, fatherly, actually sincere person who will really help the country in a national way by sitting down and talking with India and actually solving mm. the goddamn God, wound. God forbid. Imagine, you know. Right. But of course, that's, that's how you rule an empire as well, is that you keep, uh, you want as much kind of tensions, as much tension and conflict as possible. Uh, between 
between between the countries that that the empire rules over because that way it's well it's divide and conquer right you keep uh keep people out of each other's throats and then they they're they're dependent on you effectively you know so um yeah i mean and that's there's gonna be pushback against that you know so i mean we, we have we have a hard time i suppose ultimately defining who and everybody's a hard time defining who this kind of deep state these deep state types are in the in the u.s but i mean we talk about them being the intelligence agencies and some you know um you know high level members of the intelligence intelligence agencies uh kind of long serving kind of bureaucrats people and think tanks who've been there for a long time uh and also politicians actually actual serving politicians very often congressmen uh, who've been there for a long time and senators who've been there for a long time i mean there's no names you can't identify people i mean you could identify people i suppose in the intelligence agencies maybe people like john clapper or uh john not john clapper, john brennan and clapper um but there are also public faces. There's people behind the scenes who never or are never on TV in intelligence agencies as well, you know. But ultimately, those are the people who want to maintain American hegemony and the way the world has been since the Second World War with America on top. And they don't want to. I mean, that that's that's. It may, some people might say it's oversimplified, but there's not many people who can go into the details too much and think too much, too much, too long or too hard about it. So it is a good and a true explanation of why the whole anti-Russian sentiment has happened uh, and why there's conflict with China uh, from the US as well, but particularly with Russia, you know, and why there have been wars in the Middle East, I mean, and, and the attack on Syria and why the US intelligence agencies and the US government effectively, under Obama particularly and under Bush, were, fa- were basically funding and training Al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations, you know, to keep sowing discord, to keep countries that, were on, that are their subjects of empire, keep them destabilized and weak and therefore reliant on them uh for you know for 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 help basically um yes and 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 you know and the and the problem is that the the media you know uh today trump comes along trump makes noises talks about wanting to change all of that uh, not very explicitly but he talks about wanting to change it um in one way or another or in different ways and the media freaks out because so th- there really is no anti-war or anti-imperialism um, sentiment, broad, you know, across the board in America, you know, especially not in the media and by anybody who pays attention to the media. Even 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 amongst the ordinary Americans, the vast majority of people who would say they're anti-war and anti-imperialism and stuff, they don't understand uh, how the world actually works, how American imperialism has worked, and what the American government. They don't go deep enough down the rabbit hole to understand how they actually. Um, keep the whole thing burning over keep it keep it keep it ticking over keep the fighting happening happening so that they can maintain empire and also the american americans who can't who don't uh who can't go there can't see that are stuck themselves at a personal emotional level effectively with their beliefs that has been engendered or inculcated in, into them since from childhood effectively their belief in america as this wonderful great country this exceptional country and that it really should be a shining city on a hill that sheds its light around the world type of thing. I mean, the Americans are just, there's a number has been done on Americans, you know, a, a, a mind F basically, you know what I mean? Indeed. That, 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 and they're screwed, you know, they just, they can't even, they, they can't go there, you know, so it's... They, they have one key marker though that does uh, appeal to a lot of the population and we can't say how many. Um, it, it goes in contradiction to what you just said and the one marker they have 
for this isn't good, we should really be scaling it down, is that body bags come home every time they either have an outright war of intervention like in Iraq, frankly an invasion, or a humanitarian mission in Libya, etc., etc. And the body bags start coming home and they start to go, you know what? Well, they have serious direct consequences, not just the body bags, but I mean the troops that return and the mental state they're in and the murder rates and the homeless rates of veterans, they, they, they do get a real-time feedback taste. It's far weaker than it ought to be, given their splendid isolation over there between the two oceans. Mm. But they do have some feedback, and I think they do pick up on that, and that feeds into wanting to not do that anymore, to some extent. Yeah, but they're stuck. They're, they're caught in a certain sense in that dilemma where they can't get over the idea of America as, as you know, like I said, as this exceptional nation that has to, uh, that has to lead the world, has, be, has to be an example to the rest of the world, you know? So, um, and, and sold to them... It's sold them in a, in a manipulative, duplicitous kind of way as well. You know, they don't really... They're being, they're being manipulated, obviously. People are being manipulated by the media in particular. And, and, you know, it's a horrible mess, basically, you know, where the left is supposedly, you know, a supposedly anti-war, anti-imperialist left is actually the one that's encouraging people to, to maintain uh, American hegemony and therefore American imperialism and, and by, by necessity, American warmongering and, and uh, stoking up conflicts around the world, you know. So... Um, it's it's an appeal to emotion, you know, basically. Indeed. Uh, another tidbit about Khan is that he promised not to move into the presidential palace. He'll instead live in his apartment or whatever mm. in Islamabad, and he would instead turn it into an educational institution. So that, that's uh, I mean, I mean that, that that's the kind of thing that's going over very well. I mean, he he doesn't need. He's a self-made man. He's very rich, so. It, that reminded me of Gaddafi, though, living in his tent. You know, I mean, he lives in large buildings as well, but um, and uh, promising never to house his parents until every other person in Libya had a roof over their heads. Mm. He actually also looks a bit like Gaddafi uh, in Man Khan. Anyway, um, so yeah, the Pakistani military apparently likes him, but I suppose that the, the key point here is that it's the Western press doesn't like him. Whenever they get an instinctive whether it's articulated in the minds of the NYT uh, or CNN, when they're writing either those articles or those headlines, we get an idea of who they don't like. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it tells a lot about, maybe not necessarily the exact people who make up the deep state, but it tells us about the dogma that informs it. Mm. And the further candidate X in country Y gets away from that dogma, they instinctively go, we don't like him, you know, and mm -hmm. it, it's reading that that can tell you an awful lot about what's going on. Um, th there's another article I, I want to pull up here. Um, Scotty, can you get it? It's a New York Times one. This is about their piece on Cannes last week. Um, it's only a snapshot of, here we are. I don't know if people can see that. It's a bit small. Nuclear armed Islamic Republic gets unpredictable. Nuclear armed Islamic Republic gets unpredictable new leader. Unpredictable. Yeah. Unpredictable, of course, is exactly what they think of Trump. Well, partly because he is unpredictable, but he's unpredictable in what he says, but he's actually quite consistent with what he's doing compared with what he said he would do when he was running. But unpredictable is obviously a similarity with Trump, but it tells us a bit more, that mm. term unpredictable. Yeah. It's like we've had Pakistan predictable for 70 years. Mm -hmm. We like the status quo. We don't want you changing it. You know what I mean? Right. It, it, and it, it, therefore, he's getting away from the dogma. And yes, he's going to end up 
it's going to end up doing things that we don't like. Right, that we don't like, but it's going to have to do, and it's going to have to do with the will of like the average uh, American, let's say, or the average anti-war, anti-imperialist American, or just the average decent American, basically, of which there are, there are many. Uh, it's going to have to do with their will, which would be that you know every country should have uh, the right to develop as they kind of see fit, as long as they're not going to uh, bother anybody. Um, and and the people should be, have have the right to to attempt to prosper, and governments should have the right to do what's in the in the best interest of their people. And there's not no reason to think that Khan wouldn't do that. Everything he says suggests that that that's what his kind of interest is. That's what his mandate is. And yet uh, the New York Times puts up this uh, this headline that that basically ever so subtly includes that word. You know, ever so subtly kind of tarnishes him by saying unpredictable. You know, what's why would you say it's unpredictable? Why would you even call it unpredictable? He's unpredictable, but that's a for the average American reading that just that headline. He's a mm, nu- and then you put in nuclear armed, unpredictable nuclear armed. Islamic Is that a positive headline for the average reader who just reads the headline? Unpredictable nukes. I mean, imagine writing, and that's the New York Times. The New York Times was it's lefty as well, right? They're all lefty. Right? Uh, they're all anti-war, supposedly. They're all well, they're not obviously, but that's the way they present themselves, you know, and they're. Uh, people read the New York Times who are otherwise decent, ordinary people, but they'll go come away from reading that headline with thinking, "Oh, it's a bit dodgy in Pakistan." And and if the government comes along, or if something happens in Pakistan where it goes down the tubes, or Imran Khan gets shot, or something like that, or there's some kind of you know conflict rises up there, or the U.S. has to take a more belligerent approach to it, well, then people will have it in their head already as a result of uh, the New York Times and other outlets that, yeah, well, it was a bit unpredictable, and they had nukes as well, didn't they? I mean, they just people don't distrust the media enough, you know? Uh, or they say they do, but they don't actively distrust it as they're reading the freaking headlines, you know what I mean? And say this. But, but that takes a lot of work as well, you know? It's a lot of work for someone to look at every headline and try and deconstruct it and figure out. But you can take it as a given, uh, as a general rule, that when when any, any um, US media outlet is talking about other countries, especially countries that are not part of the West, quote-unquote, uh, when, it, when, it, uh, when there's a negative headline, you can pretty much assume that that negative, is he- ne- negative headline is, be- is designed to manipulate you for reasons that are not in the interests of the ordinary people in the country that they're talking about. You can assume that, you know, because they're coming from the position of these are basically the, the propaganda, the propagandists, the New York Times, CNN, New York, uh, the Washington Post, all the rest. They're propagandists for empire, basically. They've been born and brought up, you know, hooked up to exceptionalism and imperialism for America and America's the greatest country in the world. And that's all they're ever going to give, you know. And that's quite apart from the kind of vested interests that the owners of these big media outlets actually have in terms of their own, you know, uh, corporate investments around the world and their own corporate interests and their, and their, um, uh, their connections with government that are all tied to America remaining, you know, uh, top dog, basically. You know, they have vested interests. And so the idea that America has a free press is absolute nonsense, like we mentioned uh, previously. It's, it's complete and utter nonsense. There's a little video we may as well play now. It's a guy from, um, his name's uh, Skanky. <laughs> It's a great name. Uh, John Skanky. Is it Skanky? I think it's Skanky. Um, John Skanky 
no, not Stanky. Stanky, sorry, Stanky. Close enough. <laughs> John Stanky is new, which is just as bad, actually. John Stanky. Uh, he's the new boss of AT&T, which recently, earlier this year, bought Time Warner, which owns CNN. So he's basically the new boss of CNN. Right. There's just a little thing he said where he was just interviewed by the, the, the talking heads on CNN after the, the, the merger of, uh, of the two were approved. Um, and there's just one little thing that he said that, that kind of stuck out. You play it there. So why was it worth it? You know, given how hard it was, what is it about us writ large that was so attractive to AT&T? Well, first of all, it's an incredibly talented company across a lot of different media domains. And we felt it was really important that we have scale and capability to work on content from a variety of different segments. And so just like sitting here, news is very unique from what you might get in scripted long form, but both are very important in terms of how individuals want to consume content. For us over time, the days of being able to get people just to buy connectivity from you are coming to a close because connectivity is becoming very ubiquitous and very similar, and you're going to have to find ways to differentiate your business over time. And there's no better way to do it than with emotional content that customers attach to. Just pause there. What are you there. focused on, Brian? Well, uh, no better way to do it than uh, f- emotion, focusing on emotional content that customers are attached to. And what about facts and no emotion, emotional content? You heard it from the horse's mouth. He's, he's the new C- uh, CEO of the top dog in in the parent company of CNN, and he's on there talking about uh, how he's going to support CNN and, and that kind of stuff. And he says there's no better way for CNN and all of the companies uh, associated with it uh, to to prosper than focus on emotional content that people attach to. In other words, that to manipulate people. Hit the emotions. But, but the thing is, he, again he and, again. and he can say that, and and it, it doesn't sound bad. At least he doesn't think it sounds bad, and the, and the people on CNN didn't think that was a problem, right there. Emotional content that people attach to, and that's obviously, like you just said, it's usually it's almost by definition the idea of emotional content is is completely separate or or in opposition to facts and journalism and and journalism telling people the truth about things rather than what they want to hear because emotional content is what you're not going to tell emotional people emotional content that they don't want to hear. Most of the time, you're going to tell them stuff that they want to hear, that you think they want to hear. But of course, it also means telling them some bad things in terms of bad things are happening around the world. You know, uh, the world's in some bad things. You show them some, you know, traumatize them a little bit, show them some disaster zones and all that kind of stuff, you know. But emotional content, yeah, you appeal to people's emotions, you know, uh, and try and, you know, that it, it's one step from an admission of there being vested interest there because... Um, you'd have to decide what emotional content is, you know, or what emotional content you want to go with. Is your emotional content going to be to uh, make people s- say nice things about Trump or is it going to be say bad things about Trump? Well, that then comes, there's another decision to be made is what is your what is your political kind of affiliation here? Not even political affiliation, but what's your agenda? Do you have another agenda in terms of pushing a particular type of emotional content that will get people to feel or think a certain way. And there's uh, other emotions involved here too. Terrorizing and hysterizing right. people. Right. Hystericizing. Right. Making... Ah! Yeah. Which absolutely. they love doing. Yeah. just And, and then, of course, Baldy Guy from... Um, I don't know what his name is. He's common. He's ubiquitous on, on, on CNN. Baldy Guy just then asked him a question. Uh, well, it's pretty obvious the kind of question he asked him because that's all CNN obsessed about. Play, play just the next a little bit. 
You said to me the other day, CNN has a, a special social responsibility compared to, you know, TNT or TBS or the Cartoon Network. And I think what I hear from staffers here, they wonder, well, what happens when uh, CNN's Jim Acosta the other day is told by the campaign manager of the Trump campaign, you should have your credentials revoked? What happens in that environment when, when it's not Time Warner, it's Warner Media? Mm-hmm. So anyway, he goes on. So his, his main question is, what, what are we going to do about Trump? He said... You said, you said, talking to the, the boss guy, you said that uh, CNN has a special social uh, responsibility. So on that point, what are we going to do about Trump? Yeah, what's our corporate responsibility policy? No, not, 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 not just what, what, well, what, no, what, are, yeah. what tack we take on Trump, but what are we going to do about Trump? It's obviously a foregone conclusion that we've got to do something about Trump. But how would you help us in dealing with this Trump business? You know? And of course, the, the skanky, uh, stanky man said... Um, he just gives them an all answer, basically. Well, it's very, you know, important to do stuff and in a certain way that does stuff. Uh, yeah, something non-answer. A non-answer, basically, you know. So, uh, but obviously they they have an agenda, you know. Absolutely. And they're, I mean, people at his, at his level, they're basically the CEO of the parent company, the kind of top guy is. Um, um, but then the question, I mean, he's got an agenda. He's maybe, that's the whole question. Does it come down to one, one individual? Is it his agenda that dictates what happens on CNN? Or obviously, there's other people associated. There's, a, there's actually a CEO no, of no, there, CNN. There are boards. There's it's boards board and all that kind of stuff. But it's all those people, or is it something else? You know, is there, is there other, is there someone in the kind of people in the deep state, let's say, in intelligence and stuff? But it's it's all it's all quite complicated. We talked about this previously on other shows as well about how uh, reporters, like on CNN or you know, New York Post or Washington Post or New York Times or whatever, um, rely heavily, never more so, rely on intelligence agencies in Western countries for uh, their stories, basically. Not all stories, but some stories, especially political stories. How many times have you seen a CIA source or an FBI source or just a source close to the investigation told CNN that this is what's going down? And that becomes a story, you know? If you read a lot of stories on, on what's going on, what's really happening in politics, which serves a particular agenda, is validated or credited to some unnamed person. Not you know, some, A lot of times they don't even say in the intelligence agency. They simply say that it's close to the investigation. Who the hell? That could be Santa Claus, like, you know? Um, but it's more than likely somebody in politics or in intelligence agencies who are drip-feeding information and it's taken as gold. You know, it's like this. Listen, I'm your source. And I know this is happening. Why? Well, here's my credentials. I work in the CIA. I work in the FBI. I know what's going on. And I can't tell you how I know what's going on. I can't give you any evidence for it. But take it from me. This is what's happening. And they can so easily get information into the mass media in that way. And it becomes a freaking headline. And if you, th- you look at a headline, then you find, well, how do they know this? And you go down and you find it's blah, 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 blah. Source said so. Unnamed source close to investigation said so. That's the only evidence they have for, for putting out major headlines that inform public opinion, you know, and, uh, and can turn people's heads one way or another. And That's assuming they even actually got it from an actual Sometimes source. Sometimes they may not, yeah. They just write it down. Because, right. I mean, there are a lot of things, situations where it's a White House leak. And you're like, really? Someone leaked data about that? Or did someone just claim it? And they made up a version of what happened. And that's happened before. I've noticed where actually a few days later, that thing that we said was leaked, it, 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 it didn't happen. They wanted, the, 
they wanted to beat the White House, Trump's White House, to the first impression from a meeting with whatever, whoever, a foreign dignitary or someone in the U.S. Mm. So they leaked that first impression. And while we're only getting it from our source and we can't confirm it, blah, 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 but that's because someone in CNN or at the NYT just made it up. Mm-hmm. It's quite possible, yeah. I mean, that's the level of... So it's, it's, it's not even a real leak, it's a fake leak. Yeah, that's the level of, of, of hubris and, not hubris, but you know, lies and misinformation and disinformation. It's packaged up, you know. They've got so good at it now that it's, they package up their lies in a, in a nice, uh, truthy-sounding, truthy-appearing kind of box, you know, and feed it to you, you know, you swallow it. It's like freaking cyanide coated in sugar type thing, you know. And uh, it's bad for you, you know. It's, it's bad for people. But again, people are stuck because they don't uh, have the time or the energy or the inclination, let's say, to, to really try and figure all that out. And it is a web, you know. It's a very complicated web and uh, and there's very few people if anybody can really could figure it all out but you can get a general read on it you know yeah. you can you can give a general uh, overview of look this seems to be what's happening and this this plausible theory or this theory is plausible because it fits you know it maps to the way things are going in the world where um you know things are effectively getting worse for the average person uh but they're being contained or people are being held in this kind of bubble where, where they're they're kind of protected from that by by the media and they're told they're told all the wrong things by the media basically that don't inform them or don't allow them to really take stock of, of the situation and and make life decisions based on accurate information you know and that can be deadly you know ultimately deadly if things if things don't uh, if things don't pan out as as everybody would like them to you know things take a a, a pretty serious turn for the worse you know people will not be prepared you know and certainly in america people People in America should be being prepared for some kind of a downgrading of America as the global hegemon, you know. But they're not. They're not being uh, encouraged to think that way at all. And they can't, I suppose, they've been brought up that way. And uh, it's just it's too too far gone. You can't undo that kind of a belief system when it's when it's standing up in, you know, first or second grade or whatever age they do it in, in school and, and reciting the, uh, the Pledge of Allegiance and stuff, you know. That, that kind of, that's, that's a pernicious level of... Uh, of, of indoctrination that you're not going to undo in a 40 or 50 year old person, you know, except uh, to the extent that the person might be able to undo it themselves, you know, or have, have the qualities to, to see to see how that's not good, you know. Well, love of the country in itself may not be the pernicious thing. What's pernicious is that something else was layered over it in, the, in, the, in, in all these decades, whereby, as we saw and discussed last week, when people freaked out about Trump meeting Putin and called it the treason summit mm. and put it down to the clarifying choice of who do you believe, the evil Russian president or a patriotic intelligence community, i.e. the deep state, that there's been this uh, mind, the specific mind job is that that intense patriotism, you know, reciting the anthem every morning, has been used to get people to, to understand and accept that there is basically a permanent government, a deep state, mm. and it's tenet, the tenets of its dogma rule, and anyone who transgresses it is a traitor, including the president. The president can be up for treason if he transgresses the tenets of those dogma. Mm. The dogma. Um, and just to kind of confirm what we discussed this week, there was actually, um, we missed it at the time, I think it was out on just the day before, a Washington Post editorial 
I'm not going to have Scotty pull it up because it's behind a paywall. I don't know if we'll be able to see it, but people should check it out if they can see it. Um, Washington Post, it's an editorial, so it's an op-ed. It's written by one of their in-house editors, Eugene Robinson, titled God Bless the Deep State. <laughs> His opening paragraph is poo-pooing this supposed deep state, and it's in quotes. But the rest of the article is basically... Uh, a litany of Trump's crimes, his transgressions against precisely said deep state. Mm -hmm. And he concludes it by saying, in this emergency, the national crisis that the United States is in, the loyal and honorable deep state has a higher duty. It's called patriotism. And deep state here isn't, in, in scare quotes, as if to poo-poo the conspiracy. He poo-pooed it at the beginning of his article, but then he actually just basically said, yeah, it's real, and God bless it, thank God, because without it, we would just have Trump and we'd be screwed. And he finishes by saying, the honorable deep state has a higher duty. It's called patriotism. Again, the confluence of that hand on the heart, intense, intense nationalism and jingoism that Americans have been stuffed with all these decades is directly conflated with the higher duty to your patriotism, to your secret government, your secret masters, you know? Or, or the tenets that they hold, patriotism, um, sacred. It says the, the 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 honorable deep state has a duty to a higher goal. It's, which it's is higher duty, which is patriotism. Trump doesn't have it. Trump's being he's treasonous and he's against our country. He is an anti-patriot. But the deep state, thank God for its existence, they're patriotic. Is patriotic and it saves us from a traitor like Trump. Right. Well, <laughs> that leaves out the people of America, though. No. I mean, are these, are these, these deep states are supposedly working in the interest of the American people? Of course they're not. Because at least 50% at least of voters, anyway, didn't, didn't vote for them, voted for Trump. They, they, in, their, in their reality creation, they believe that the majority, I mean, they, they, whatever shenanigans they pull during the 2016 election, they're convinced that Hillary won the popular vote, even though she didn't no. get 50 people to turn up at her rallies. Who, who's convinced? Well, it's it's a truism now that Hillary yeah. won the popular vote the by Stater, several million. But people in the know know that that's not the case. Right? They're liars. It, it's nonstop reported as fact. But they lie with every breath they take, basically. You know what I mean? These are people who any any leadership in any country, regardless of whether it's covert or overt, has a responsibility to preparing the people of that country to face reality in the in the most graceful and um, kind of productive and 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 uh, positive way possible. You know, to 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 help people to confront reality and deal with reality and deal with the future and deal deal with changing times in the world. Uh, but what the deep the deep state in the U.S. or whatever you want to call it are doing exactly the opposite of that. Yeah. Trump is the one who's actually trying to prepare America and American people for a changing world. Yes. Like we said earlier on in the show, uh, there is a clearly that the, there's major change, major global shift underway in terms of the balance of power in the world. And America is not going to be, is not, isn't really even now, is not top dog anymore. And is not going to be, certainly not going to be top dog. And that's a big adjustment for America to make. And most, most importantly for the American people. Because it's going to affect them uh, most, most particularly. Um, because it'll have economic implications and all that kind of stuff. But those people are just are denying that it's happening and trying their best to prevent the change from happening. And to convince the American people to support them in preventing a change from happening, you know? Yeah. It's, it's like a, there's a tidal wave coming, you know, you can see it on the horizon, you know? 
and people, some people are going, yeah, that tidal wave might be getting a bit close there, and your government is saying, no, no, ignore that tidal wave, don't be so stupid, that's actually Russian propaganda, that's a Russian manipulation, it's actually a hologram, it's not a tidal wave, and it's just Russia is out to get us, we are here and we will stay here, and that tidal wave is, it doesn't even exist actually, and anybody who does is, is fake news, you know, it's, 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 it's nonsense, it's lies, it's propaganda, I mean, that's highly, highly irresponsible, uh, yeah. you know, and that tidal wave is a tidal wave, a, a, wave, a sea change, or a, a change uh, in, like, I've, like I've been saying, in the, in the global power uh, balance. And Americans need to prepare themselves for it. And if they are kept in this kind of um, tractor beam almost, where they're held in stasis, where they're not doing anything about it, where they're not recognizing, not foreseeing it coming, then the hammer's going to fall pretty hard on them when it does happen because they're going to be completely unprepared. Or to, f to follow your analogy, the weight of the sheer weight of that water. Yeah, it's, it's, a, very, it's a good analogy. Um, and it, Americans are least. They want it too. I mean, they elected Trump, right? Um, there's probably going to be a red wave in the upcoming um, elections for Congress, contrary to the so-called blue wave. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, they're, they're really hamstrung by having by being closest, if you like, in ideologically, whatever about geographically, to this reality creation, this bubble of, of how the world they think actually works. Yeah. But other countries, with the distance of both geography and then ideology it seems to be easier for them to elect a leader and a party and th thus a counterbalance that's in sync with the changing mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. in, in Eastern Europe, it's been able to happen in Poland, in the Czech Republic, in Hungary, of course, with Viktor Orban. In Western Europe, it's having a hard time translating into reality mm -hmm. because there have been populist, nationalist leaders, but uh, they haven't been elected yet or they're on the verge of it. Um, Germany, again, is on the brink. Merkel just about got through. But uh, in countries like Pakistan, it's able to happen. Mm. Um, it's, still, it's, still, it's still remarkable for their own context, but still, it could actually happen. Well, pop populism and nationalism is popular uh, among any people, yeah. uh, any kind of coherent or um, cohesive you know, group of people who have lived in a, in a geographic area for quite a long period of time. The idea of nationalism is just the same as, it's the same as community spirit, basically. You know, it's it's, it's about uh, identifying with, it's identity politics. It's identifying with the people who live in your, it's just an extension of, for example, the people who live in your house, then the people who live in your community, then the people in, who live in the bigger town, then the people who live in the bigger city. You're from that city, so you identify with being from that city then uh, expand that out. I mean, it has limits, obviously, and global is too much, obviously. Uh, but it's also constrained, in, and has been constrained throughout history by uh, by uh, ethnicity, you know, mm -hmm. as well, and religion. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that, you know, for people to identify with people who share their same cultural values. Or, and and that, there's an extension of that to skin colour in a certain sense, you know. It doesn't mean that people of other skin colours can't actually incorporate into that. But it doesn't. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that um, that that that's that that's it's it, it insignificant. Let's say, depending on the country, that skin color is insignificant depending on the country. You know that, and that it's something evil or bad. You know, um, and, and and it gives people, you know, that that idea, sense of community and sense of community values and cult similar cultural values. It's just something that makes people feel more content. Have, live a more kind of and live a more meaningful life, or feel like more 
I suppose more comfortable, more part of an identity, part of something. You know, mm-hmm. it gives them a sense of uh, st- stability and, and and belonging. Let's say, mm-hmm. you know, and that's effectively what nationalism, where nationalism comes from, in the average person. But that absolutely has been demonized because Hitler, because Hitler. Which is, <laughs> I'm glad you brought this up because one of the key tenets of the dogma is precisely the Hitler issue, and specifically um, the ethnicity issue. In the dogma. Nationalism is bad because it encourages, feeds, leads to, grows into an ethnic, um, my in-group, my tribe-based view of the world, and that leads to a war and decimation of one ethnicity against another. Well, there's another interesting case study from this year also that took place in another Muslim-majority country in Malaysia. I think it was in May they had elections, and for the first time since the post, another post-colonial British mess, for the first time ever, a party other than the established one left behind was also voted into power. And it was led by someone who has previously been in government. Let me pronounce his name right. Mahathir. Mahathir Mohammed. The guy's 92 years old. He's basically come out of retirement to lead the first successful election of someone who wasn't the established ruling UNMO party. Now, this is Malaysia is an interesting case study because. This population today is just under 70% is Malay. Then there's a large Chinese minority, uh, almost a quarter of the population, and a smaller 7% or Indian extraction. The ruling party was founded also in 1946 to to keep Malaysia as a Malay-dominated, ethnic-based country. It's actually built into their constitution, and there are special privileges for native Malays. Um, so for 59 years, they've won all the elections until this one. Mm. For a party that specifically did not run on that, it ran on a nationalist, but here nationalist was not ethnic-based. It was what's best for the country. It, it was also an anti-corruption drive, which is already bearing fruit. Um, the previous prime minister's in prison or he's, he's awaiting trial, I'm not sure. Um, it's, so it's nationalist, but it's not the fear it's not the 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 tenet of the fear of nationalism it, it's going it was going against the trend they said would happen that there would be an ethnic-based nationalism and genocide of one ethnicity against another mm-hmm. they actually booked the trend they had previously been in which was voting based on ethnicity mm-hmm. to vote on a what's best for the country as a whole and ironically in this case this is not um in pakistan's case it was to there was a widespread support for the strengthening of ties with China because in that situation, there's a, Pakistan's caught between Afghanistan and India and China. Chinese investment is good for Pakistan. In Malaysia, they're upset with Chinese investment because it's been producing some, at least some bad fruit. A lot of the corruption comes from a lot of hot money that comes in from Chinese investment. So Mahathir ran on not nixing and not an anti-Chinese platform, but at least on revising some of the deals because it, the development's been unequal and unbalanced for a lot of poor Malays. Mm. So, yes, there was a nationalist overthrow of a regime for almost seven, seven decades. But ironically, it uh, goes against the very claim that they have that nationalism is bad because, you know, if people are basing on their in-tribe on an ethnicity basis, that can only lead to, to negative negative problems. Yeah. And again, he's an older guy. 
like Imran Khan, he's an older guy. He's a bit different because he's been a prime minister before. He oversaw Malaysia, Malaysia's transformation in the 90s. It's modernization. It's industrialization, basically. You know, he's a land-loving conspiracy theorist as well. Right. Uh, pro- he, held, he held war crimes tribunals and stuff and um, about the Iraq war and stuff in, in Malaysia. You know, he, he basically set them up and... Uh, and then held the had the hearings and stuff, you know, and he and he believes that nine eleven was an inside with a fail, was a false flag attack. And at and, least publicly, he's he's, he's pro Palestinian, yeah, anti Israel. Um, I think it's Malaysia is a country that specifically states in their passports that their Malay citizens are not allowed into Israel. Yeah. Um, but again, he's he's ninety two. He he's another older. Experienced, experienced man, and experienced specifically in this case in politics, and he's a kind of a father of the nation figure, mm-hmm. and he's an economic nationalist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anybody who wants to break free of the of the chains of of empire, let's say, um, and they can do that now at a certain time, but during a certain period of time, it served people well enough. You know, the countries that were just developing at the time, it served them well enough. They got. Uh, investment from the U.S. and U.S. companies were set up and stuff. But now, as as the world has progressed and technology has progressed and the economy is, you know, the global economy is improving and all that kind of stuff in the countries, you know, infrastructure, globalized infrastructure, which the U.S. set up or the U.S. basically oversaw, let's say, to maintain their imperialism has actually worked against them in the sense that it has empowered these nations now to kind of stand on their own two feet. And to break away from those chains of empire, they're going to have to engage in a certain amount of nationalism, of economic nationalism. And the problem is that economic nationalism, uh, in order to sell economic nationalism, you generally have to talk about kind of, uh, you know, cultural nationalism, let's say, or nationalism in general, let it has to be national sentiment. There is going to be national sentiment that encourages economic because you can't start saying we, the Malays, need to stand up for our economic rights against those Americans uh, without kind of like engendering a little bit of animosity and also a, ten- a, a tendency toward to be more kind of like a cohesive, a, a nationalistic or patriotic feeling amongst the people. You know, yeah, Malaysia for Malaysians or something along those lines, you know. So it's, you know... And it's not necessarily a problem, and it's, you know, the whole nationalism is bad thing just comes from, like, we're talking about Hitler and the Second World War and the fact that, you know, nationalism caused the second, basically World War Two and the death of 65 million people, blah, 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 blah. But it's not the same. You can't just take it from then and supplant it today, and anybody who talks about nationalism or populism today mm-hmm. is automatically going to turn into Hitler or be, be a Nazi. Like, it's absolutely ridiculous. That's the level of, the freaking idiotic level of thinking, you know, that, that goes on. It just, it just blows my mind, you know, and... We have another case study, another recent election in Mexico. So here, another key tenet of the nationalism leads, leads to evil and all these national leaders is a dark turn for the world. Um, here's another key tenet, that they are far right. Mm. Far right, populist national leaders, they're everywhere. Mexico. Scotty, can you pull up The Economist? Um, co- this was a cover story and title of their article. Before he was actually voted in, um, I think it was about a month beforehand. It's astonishing because they had already identified that this guy was going to be a problem for them. Oh, you don't have the link. Hang on, I'm going to send you the link. Um. <clears throat> yeah. I've already mentioned it earlier in the show. <laughs> it's just worth reading because how can they condense a complex political situation in a country just to this? There we go. Uh, 
Yeah. There we are. Amelo. Amlo. Amlo. That's just the acronym yeah. for his long Mexican name. Mexico's answer to Donald Trump. The guy is a lefty. Mm. And I don't mean lefty like ultra liberal New York cosmopolitan, you know, hipster lefty. I mean like workers' rights, trade union. He's, he's, he's similar to Jeremy Corbyn, that he's been a politician for a good long decades. He's run before. He, he thought it was stolen from him in the 2006 election, the, the, the presidential campaign for, for, for Mexico. He's been the mayor of Mexico City. Uh, people there feel positively about him. And finally, at age, again, I think he's pushing 70-something, he finally gets elected. But the key point there is that here's a lefty. He's... he's he, he's left beyond the left of the establishment. Hang on a minute. The left are... The left and he's a nationalist. He's the, Mexico's the, Trump. So the lefty media are accusing him of being uh, like Trump. And he's a lefty. So you have leftist media accusing a leftist of being like Trump, which kind of makes sense. Well, you have leftist media accusing a leftist Mexican pre prime minister of being like Trump because he's talking about workers' rights which is a leftist thing, a leftist kind of agenda. But Trump also has been, uh, you know, part of his presidency and part of his campaign, certainly, and, and since then, has been defined by his interest in and desire or interest in workers' rights in America. So Trump is a leftist as well then. So what does that make CNN? A bunch of right-wing deep staters. Where again, this, this, but these, this, this is terms where, break this down. Is you, have, you have to look at the specific details. One of Trump's key things when he ran was a trillion-dollar infrastructure investment plan. That's FDR stuff right there. That's left. Yeah, but it, well, and also bringing back jobs and, and looking after the the, 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 the blue-collar workers and all that kind of stuff. And that's the little people. That's the proletariat. That's that's you know raise up the proletariat. That's communism. What all of these guys have in common is that they're socially conservative. But they're, they're old left when it comes to the economy, to the well-being of all. Right, social and yet, conservatism, and Trump, economic. Trump, Trump, more than anyone else, knows he wants to get rich and uh, what it takes to get rich and what the best kind of environment is for him to get rich. And, and something else. He, he's not just sending his money abroad and getting the best returns via hedge funds. He actually wanted to build a company where there would be real Americans working in it. And if, they, if they're too sick to come to work... What good is it? So he sees it in very pragmatic terms, but he ends up inadvertently being the classic marriage of the left when it comes to the economy and the right when it comes to so, to, to social values. Mm. And that is the, the, the sinking up of what makes a nationalist leader in the, in the healthiest sense of that term. And that's why all these guys are like kryptonite mm. to the establishment, the global establishment. Um, so th this is a snippet from The Economist special. It was a cover story in April or May. Uh, what, is, what is about to happen? So they, they were sure he was going to be elected because he was leading the polls. What is about to happen in Mexico is similar to the election of Donald Trump in the United States, the vote of Great Britain to leave the European Union, and the turn of Italy towards populism. In their mind, it's crystal clear. They, they really... Can they articulate it further? I didn't get much from the Economist article. I doubt they can really. We'd probably have to sit down and get them to write a freaking book or a treatise on it. But this may, I think it's really something 
system one. It's it's instinctive first, and then they write this. It's all similar. But they can't really articulate why it is. Yeah, they don't know. They're idiots, basically. Um, they're 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 just mind programmed. I mean, they're mind programmed, like we're saying earlier on the show. These people are just they're acting out a belief system that they have no real awareness of. Uh, and have no real understanding of of the of the implications of its application. Let's say they're just going with what feels good to them, which is yeah, system like a, a lower level consciousness uh, program that's running. Yeah, and they've been fed it, and they've been made that way. And uh, there's no conscious awareness, no conscious, no conscious, um, you know, um, no consciousness brought to bear on it to decide whether or not this is right, what I, whether or not what I believe what I strongly feel or what I strongly believe is actually appropriate or the right thing to do for, there's no sense of responsibility in that respect, you know, for doing the right thing. It's just go with what makes me feel good. What makes you feel good is very often things that have been programmed into you by other people. So you're basically an automaton uh, and you're dangerous uh, for that for that, for that reason. The Economist is obviously, a, well, Nominally a British publication, but it's read, you know, in Western capitals the world over. But just in case there's any, um, it wasn't unique to them. The Washington Post, before AMLO was elected, ran this op-ed, title of which is, The Future President of Mexico is Very Similar to Trump. Mm. If Mexicans elect Lopez Obrador, they will be, like the voters who supported Trump, exploiting the status quo without a reliable sense of what will replace it. The result is likely to be a bigger problem on both sides of the border. They don't know why, but it's it's not good. It's yeah. going to be it's going to be bad. Yeah. It's insane. Um, and again, AMLO has the same character Distance. characteristics, I suppose, as Mahathir in Malaysia, as Khan in Pakistan. He's sixty five, consistently old school leftist. Um, He's he's finally in power. He's been a, he's he's been a politician the whole time, but he's never he's never actually become president, of course, till now. So again, he's another experienced father of the nation type figure, and an economic nationalist. Mm. Um, which, for me, all of this brings me to the UK. Mm. Jeremy Corbyn. I I tried to make this argument with some Corbynistas when they were rapidly protesting Trump. Uh, and his visit in, in London a couple of weeks ago, I was saying, guys, what do you you do realize that Corbyn is your Trump? Wow, no, never. He's not a Nazi. He says nice things. He wants to make the world a better place. He doesn't want to destroy it. And they use a litany of stuff. So mm -hmm. they're taken superficially, but they don't realize that their their deeper attraction to Jeremy Corbyn is that he's again. A father of the nation type figure, in his case, also very experienced politician, but sidelined because the whole system had gone so radically this way in all these decades. Mm. And now, finally, the popular will is someone. Jeremy Corbyn stayed right where he is. He's been consistent the whole time. He just stood there, you know, out on the fringes of Parliament, leading some protests, meeting some world, world leaders or other figures internationally who are terrorists and you should never meet with them. He's been consistent, and then the people are ready to sync up with that at the right time. Come, mm. come at the hour, come at the man, kind of thing. Mm. Reverse of the the saying, but it, I think Corbyn articulated it. He he he, he didn't. He he of course will. He'll 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 hate what I'm saying. He would distance himself from Trump, 
But this week he put out a detail in part part of a speech, a detailed in, uh, economic plan for the UK. It's basically MAGA. Mm. It's build it in Britain. It's bring home all the capital we've been sending all over the world, hot cash from London to make high profits for a few who don't actually live here, don't even pay their taxes here, don't, who have no real ties to the nation. Mm. He's going to try the same thing and draw that capital back and rebuild industry and build in Britain, basically made in the UK. They're mm. going to actually start making stuff again instead of just sending weapons abroad and hot money mm. that destroys other countries. It's, it's, it's a classic lefty, old school left, mm-hmm. uh, national industry, at least some government control of key industrial sectors. Mm-hmm. It's precisely what the far right new Hitler, Vladimir Putin, did to Russia in the, in the last couple of decades. It's not total control of the state. The, they've obviously had their experience with Soviet ideology and they're not doing that again, but they did wrest back control of certain sectors. Mm-hmm. And Corbyn now wants to do the same thing. He is, in short, another well, fatherly figure of the nation and an economic nationalist. Mm-hmm. He's a Donald Trump. Yeah. So... The well, speaking of the UK, I mean, the, I mean, Corbyn can has a lot of leeway to kind of say that kind of stuff now because of the complete uh, shambles that is going on uh, in the in the ruling party in the Conservative Party over Brexit. That has, I mean, that's all they've done. They've basically done nothing for the past three years except Brexit. I mean, the country obviously runs itself without this bunch of uh, idiotic politicians, uh, you know, picking their noses and. You know, messing things up, um, but that's all. That's what they've had to busy themselves with over the past two or three years uh, since Brexit. Basically, nothing else has been going on except what are we going to do with Brexit? How are we going to deal with Brexit? How are we going to? How are the negotiations going? Are they going anywhere? Oh, I don't know. I don't think they are. Is it going to be a hard Brexit? Is it going to be a soft Brexit? Is anything going to happen at all? Nobody knows. But it takes a lot of airtime and uh, gets a lot of you know people's faces on TV. Um, but we've predicted, or more particularly. I predicted from, not maybe not from the get-go, but from the start almost. We need some applause here. <laughs> from the start almost that um, that wasn't going to happen. That uh, it just, I mean, and it was obvious that it was not going to happen. There's no way the UK can actually extricate itself yeah. from uh, the European Union. It's been there for 50 years at least. They're in too deep. They're way in too deep. Their entire economy is just, so intertwined with the European economies and the EU economy in general that I mean it, it's suicide, you know. It's 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 just such a bad idea. And I've been waiting for some over the past six months, year or so. I've been waiting for some campaign to get going mm-hmm. to start the process of a second referendum because that seemed to me to be the most. Uh, the really only way that they could get out of the, the, the Brexit quagmire was to undo what caused it in the first place, which was having a referendum and then the vote being that, yes, majority of people want to leave the EU. Now they'll have to. But leading up to a second referendum, I've been watching and waiting because leading up to it, uh, you would have to have a process of scaring the public into, um, you know, agreeing to another referendum or getting the political capital, enough political capital to announce another referendum and then be sure have scared the people enough that they would vote yes or no this time that we want to stay within the EU. Now that campaign has been 
I mean, the, the the shambles that's been going on with the with the Tory government and the whole shit show that has been the Brexit negotiations and how May has just been made like a complete idiot along with their entire uh, cabinet, or entire entire government, and the resignation of some high profile members and all that kind of stuff over over Brexit. It's getting to the point where it's just this is obviously a disaster, and if you were really going to push that message home of we need another referendum and see what happens, uh, you would scare people mm. into saying, increase the fear factor about what will happen if there is, which is increasingly likely, or that's the way they're, they're, they're making it happen, is increasingly likely there's going to be a hard Brexit, i.e. the Brexit, uh, UK will leave with no deal whatsoever. It'll just be cut adrift and screwed. Uh, so there's been a, pro, uh, led by the independent uh, UK um, newspaper, we have an example of one of the articles they put up this week. I noticed that two, on, on two successive days, they had a, a stream, like two themed, at the top of their page, two themes on this, mm. with multiple articles. This is just one of them. Final say, more than 350,000 people back the independence campaign for a vote on government Brexit deal. Okay, so they're going for a vote on the deal, like as to say, as if to say... Um, this isn't going to happen. This isn't. This is a bad idea. We don't want the government to actually negotiate Brexit at all anymore. Put up the other article there, Scotty. The RT one. Um, yeah, this is the kind of scaremongering I was talking about. God help us, British Army on standby in case of no deal Brexit supply issues. Uh, so that's basically the British Army is. This is stories coming out. And actually, just scroll down a little bit. So it's actually, it actually says that uh, right there, ministers planning Brexit told the media, these are, actual, these are actually, this, this is the key point here that stuck out for me, was that this isn't the independent, the lefty organization mm -hmm. that would be anti-Tories and is anti-Brexit. This is uh, actual Theresa May's conservative government ministers, mm -hmm. supposedly pro-Brexit on, on, on song with the, with the government's agenda of of. Yeah. of pushing Brexit through, telling people, telling the media that the army is on standby to deliver key supplies like food, fuel, med and medicines in the eventuality of a no-deal scenario. Right. So that's basically May herself, who is supposedly, out of one side of her mouth, she's saying, no, we are going to uh, fulfill the will of the British people, we're going to have Brexit, we're going to get the best deal possible, and that's, it's a done deal, and under no circumstances will there be a refer another referendum. We're doing Brexit and that's it. Out of one side of her mouth. Yeah. Out of the other side of her mouth, via her ministers, she's trying to scare people with these kind of stories, scare them into wanting a second referendum, right. wanting to undercut her position. And that's why then she closed Parliament early this year and they all went on summer holidays. Right, because... Because they, they don't want... It's a disaster. They, they, they want to, they don't, there's nothing to negotiate as far as they're concerned. Right. They're going to bring about a situation where there has to be a second round, where people will clamor for it. Right. Um, absolutely, yeah. And the other, the other, the exciting statistics and all that kind of stuff as well, um, saying that since, <laughs> this is how long it's been, I didn't realize it was this long, but since uh, the Brexit referendum happened, there are something like 2 million or 1.6 million uh, teenagers have come of age, voting age, and that they are in a demographic or of a political persuasion that, well, they're anti-Brexit, basically. Um, so that, and that number of new voters who are anti-Brexit is more than the margin of victory that the Brexit 
uh, the, the supporters of Brexit got. So that if we have a referendum today, a majority of the people, according to the independent, a majority of voters in the UK, there would be enough voters in the UK who would say no, who would overturn the decision. So they're really pushing hard on it, you know? Yeah. But they still might need to rig it. Yeah. The election in some way. Well, that's uh, easy enough referendum. Well, call me a conspiracy theorist, but... You're a conspiracy theorist. The, <laughs> the, the timing of the announcement of Bre- the the holder referendum... No, it happened first, I think. I looked into this before. I was wondering if that came after Jeremy Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party. I think the Brexit referendum was announced beforehand, but only by several months. Mm. Then Corbyn was elected... But I think everything that's happened since then, the delaying and so on, the, the talking out of one side of the mountains and then, then doing this in the background, I think it's done, especially since Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party, with one eye. One eye only on the foreign aspect, the UK and the EU, are we in or not? And the other eye on Jeremy Corbyn and or someone like him who will come up and effectively change the regime into a popular nationalist run government like all these other countries are seeing all over the world because that that is the death knell i mean his 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 thing where britain will reindustrialize do you understand the enemies he will have i mean that's it's i've wondered by the way this is kind of a side note but i wondered if trump's whole trade wars if you look in the details and what he would actually like to do is basically trying to draw back american capital it's not really about having a war with country X and country Y. It, it, it's a roundabout war. It's a cover story for the war against or the, an effort to get American capital back from those cheap labor countries and producing again the United mm-hmm. States. In, in Corbyn's case, he's articulated it clearly. He's not hiding behind something. He says, I want that capital back. That'll make it even harder to do, I suspect, because if you're heading, you're straight on engaging these hedge funds in London and you know the deep state has a big branch of its... Hydra in London, of course. Mm. Um, yeah, it's. I um, there's one thing I wanted to say before we call it quits here. Um, and it's what well, something that really annoys me and is indicative of uh, pro- probably most of the world's problems, at least certainly in the West, all of the social problems in the West today is people's inability or rather people's proclivity to think only in black and white terms, or to only be able to think in black and white terms. Like, I've come across on Facebook and social media and on websites, on our own website and that kind of stuff in the comments section, of people showing a complete inability to think in kind of nuanced terms and to realize that things are not black and white. Um, and to And to assume or be able to understand that there are people who don't think that way? People who, who aren't into picking a side, who aren't, um, who, who aren't, you know, automatically on on the left or the right. However way, however it's defined today, it seems to be fairly well defined between left and right. Right? You've got the nationalists, the right wingers, the Nazis, and you've got the lefties, the multiculturalists, that kind of thing. Broadly speaking, right? People are active anyway. I'm sure there's a great silent majority out there who don't say anything about this and haven't really made up their own minds. But the people who are actually active all seem to be either of one stripe or another, right? They're all, at least that's what's presented to people, that people are in one camp or the other. And you'd, uh, and for otherwise intelligent people, it's amazing for me to see that they're unable to conceive of the idea that 
of that the people like us, for example, would exist, where we're not pro-Trump and we're not pro-multiculturalism. We're not pro this or pro that. We're not, you know, die hard, uh, inscribed in stone uh, for this and against that or vice versa. That basically we take every situation on its merits and we're interested in the truth of the situation, the truth being associated with what is good and what is bad for, uh, let's say, society in general or what can be assumed is is a good direction or a bad direction based on historical lessons and based on understanding of, of human beings and, and, and how they operate psychologically and all that kind of stuff that you would, in any given situation, you might say something positive about Trump or right, right-wing movements in, in, in essence or, or say some that there are some positive aspects to it. And then in another situation, you'd say there are some positive aspects, aspects about, about left-wing movements, you know. Uh, but as soon as you open your mouth, depend, even if you're, so you're commenting on one situation and you happen to take to take a more leftist or more rightist approach on any one specific situation. As soon as someone hears you saying that, then you're condemned as a Nazi or a libtard. Mm-hmm. They obviously people would have to follow you and see what you're saying, you know, but there, there are people, the people I'm talking about are people who follow you and have followed me or are, are, are looking at what I'm saying, but they still don't seem to be able to understand that I'm not right wing or left wing. That's a stupid designation to make. You know what I mean? That in any given situation, it's like, so what are your, what, what's, what's your stance on this? What's your opinion? Are you left or right on this? Uh, but that's, that's like reducing it to a, a ridiculously simplistic level that is totally irrelevant to the nuanced and complex nature, nature of the topic that you're discussing. Mm-hmm. So why are people so idiotic and stupid that they can't conceive of that idea that any sm- inte- half-intelligent person would have to come at each situation and, 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 and judge it based on its merits? And the result, with the result being that you may sound a bit like a right winger, or you may sound a bit like a left winger, but you're freaking neither. What's wrong with people? Because they want to pigeonhole you. Because it's simple, right? It's easier. They want to put you in a box, and it's done. Now I know who you are. Because they grew up with bad parents. Ah. And I don't mean their actual flesh and blood parents who did the best they could under the circumstances. I mean bad parents in the sense of government regimes. The government would have them think in black and white in perpetuity forever and never actually think through a situation because it suits it suits it's divide and conquer isn't it it's classical where do you stand on this are you one or the other and then it's easier to raise a mob that way it's easier to push through legislation that way it's easier to start civil wars if you wanted to like syria that way um it comes down to bad parenting. That the, the parent themselves either. So I'm thinking here of the, you know, the the self-appointed wise men of say in Washington or in Paris or London or wherever they are. It's either because they themselves see the world in those black and white terms, or worse, more pernicious. They want people. They to want see it. them to. Yeah, they want people to see it in those terms. They want like your head there of the new head of CNN, articulated mm-hmm. and said. We are good, you know, emotional based um, things that people are attached to. I.e., we're going to keep you attached by keeping you manipulated. Right. By giving you black and white, oversimplified uh, versions of by events ha- that are not reflective of. By reporting a story about a dog that was rescued from a car and having resistance 
they've been doing that. They just have anti-Trump slogans scrolling across the bottom of the screen while they're reporting about the heat wave in you know Minnesota right. or something. Yeah, that's that's bad parenting. It's uh, it's worse than that. It's uh, it's consciously evil parenting, mm. and those people need to pay. And I hope someday they will somehow. Uh, but if not, well, we'll just struggle on, and we'll try and keep things as sane as possible. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we'll do our best anyway to do that. So, yeah, I think we'll leave it there for this week. Thanks for watching. If you liked this, uh, if you're watching the video version, if you liked it, please subscribe. And I think you have to push some other buttons or whatever. I'm not quite up on that. It's uh, on the notifications button. Click the notifications click, button as click well. Click the bell. Click the bell. There you go. You got to click the bell these days, like Pavlov's dog. Uh, <laughs> Um, so yeah until uh, until next time thanks for listening thanks for watching and we'll see you again bye see y'all bye bye